Okay, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I shared a couple of months back with a pastor friend um, that I was going to be doing this study, and his one-word response to me was this, idiot. It's intimidating. It's intimidating. I want us this week to explore a map of sorts. It's going to be on the screens of of where we're going to embark in these next 11 weeks. Starting today, this is an introduction. We're going to take a look at the next 11 weeks, how we immerse ourselves in this epic work. As is always the case, there is always way more time than we could give to any and every one of these sections. So it it is my hope that I can at least encourage and invite you to do that, set you up to do that yourself, go deeper in these sections that we're not going to go deep enough on, or help you see that that it's more engageable, it's more approachable than maybe you previously thought or currently think, or at very least help you see that this is a more necessary book than many have assumed and also a more engaging book than we might have assumed. So this is week one. Week two, first eight verses, where John signals how to read this book. No better guide in, in how to read this book than the author himself. Week three and week four, they come under the banner of Jesus and his church, where we start with the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. Thank God for that. And that the church has a responsibility and accountability to his headship. This is where we're going to explore specific messages addressed to those specific seven churches. And by the end of week four, I'm guessing that you're going to kind of feel like, you know, Revelation, this isn't that bad. It kind of feels like other New Testament epistles. I don't know what everybody's all worried about. (laughs) Just wait. Week five, I'm going to do an overview on eschatology. That's the study of end times and also apocalyptic literature. That's the type of literature that Revelation is, but also many other books of the Bible. We're going to take an overview look in week five at those two things, eschatology and apocalyptic literature, because following that then, we're going to take the next four weeks, week six through nine, and actually dive into the meat of revelation, the heart of what might, what must take place. And by the way, if I'm losing you already <laughs> with any of those words like eschatology and apocalyptic literature, that's exactly why we need to do an overview in week five. I'm very excited about that week. And then we'll take week six through nine to actually deal with the content. In week 10, we come to the great plan of revelation. The great plan of restoration, the new heaven and the new earth, final two chapters of the great reveal. And then in week 11, we're going to explore why I'm going to encourage us at that point to now read our Bibles backwards in light of what we just uncovered and what was revealed to us. Now go back to the epistles. Now glean what it means to follow Jesus with all of his imparted words to our lives and our souls now live lives of worship and endurance 
as scripture calls us to. So that's our 11-week map. Also, I want to cover right here at the onset some things that we're not going to get caught up in that might trip us up or distract us in this this study and this approach. One is an overemphasis of Revelation as being primarily predictive or primarily literal or over-applications amidst current events or eschatological entrenchment. Some of you may have no idea what I just said, and others of you may have heard something that you actually really resonate with. That's what I'm looking for. But as an upfront statement, I promise you, if you're waiting for any of that, you're going to be disappointed in this study. And you might even become accusatory. We will look at the book of Revelation through 11 weeks based on its terms. And while I'm not saying any of those areas of emphasis are inherently wrong, we're not going to focus on them in this study. So the book of Revelation, the great reveal, who wrote it? Author, chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. So is that John the Apostle? Or John the Elder? Or some other John? Well, while we can make probable inferences and we will make probable inferences, we don't know for 100% certainty. Which right there at the start teaches us something about our posture when we come to the book of Revelation. If we need everything in black and white terms, black and white clarity for things that we have questions about, Revelation is going to be a really challenging engagement. And maybe that's exactly what we need. So candidate one is John the Apostle, the one that is also credited with writing the Gospel of John. This is the guy that was a part of the inner core of Jesus' disciples, the inner three. John was a witness of the transfiguration, an invitee to the very intimate setting of the Garden of Gethsemane. He was an influential leader in the very earliest days of the church. Read Acts chapter 4 on that, on John's influence in the early church. I would have loved to embark on that chapter today, but, but this isn't a study on the book of Acts. John the Apostle, as the first candidate for authorship, that, that runs into criticism about him being the author of the language of the Gospel of John and the language of Revelation can't possibly have come from the same author. It's just too different. And I'm going to come back to that because if that's the main pushback, I don't think it's very strong. There's another prominent candidate, candidate two, for authorship. His name is John. And he's the same John that wrote the three letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And then others think that all the Johns we've mentioned, the apostle, the writer of the gospel, the writer of the three epistles, and the writer of Revelation, that's all the same person. And the pushback still remains. John the Elder, as candidate for authorship of Revelation, would run into the same issues of authorship that John the Apostle does. Because it's not like if you read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, it sounds like Revelation. It's different. 
So we're going to have to leave that debate a little vague, though, simply because we don't know for sure. The gospel, the epistles, and the book of Revelation, they are all written in different styles. But that's also because they're three entirely different kinds of works. I wrote a fiction trilogy once, kind of along the lines of a a spiritual allegory, Chronicles of Narnia-style fiction. And and if somebody said that, that the author of those fiction books and a sermon that I write when I'm 70 can't possibly be from the same person because they just sound too different. I think that's pretty weak. They're different. They're drastically different. They're written in different styles for different purposes and at different times. And either way, it doesn't critically matter to the meaning and the implications of the book of Revelation, which John it really is. Don't you love when someone takes a couple of minutes to unpack something and then at the end says, in the end doesn't really matter which one it is. It doesn't make a dramatic difference to what the book is telling us, which John it really is. So all of that just at least to have dealt with the issue of authorship. I could be wrong in this, but I'm going to go with the Apostle John for authorship along the lines of many commentators that I trust. And I'm open to other possibilities, but we're going to move on. If it is John the Apostle being written somewhere around 95 and 96 AD, that would make John an aged, wise, seasoned, experienced man, writing to an audience. Now we're, we're going from authorship to audience. As we read earlier in chapter 1, verse 4, John writes to the churches. When you hear that, remember, that's bands of believers in seven cities, each uniquely challenged. So we're going to have a map here that kind of talks about where these seven cities are. For spatial awareness, this is on the the north coast of the Mediterranean. You got Italy and Rome up to the north and the west there, or for those that are cartographically challenged, to the left. (laughs) Israel isn't pictured on this map, but it would be to the east and a little bit further south. Africa, more specifically Egypt, is directly due south. So that's where we're at geographically. Recalling chapter 1, verse 9, John tells us that he wrote this while exiled on the island of Patmos. That's the only location there that's highlighted in pink. Patmos, that's where John wrote that, on the southwestern coast of Asia there. So northeast of Patmos, starting with the first church mentioned in chapter 2, That's the people of the church of Ephesus, a church and a people that many of us are very familiar with. So secondly, he writes to the church at Smyrna, just to the north of Ephesus. And then conveniently moving here clockwise, the church at Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church at Philadelphia, and the church at Laodicea, the seven churches of Revelation. That's the direct audience that this letter, these letters were written to. So as John addresses his remarks to each of these bands of believers, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and and so on. And so this could refer to literal angels, 
that are sent as messengers to these church bodies. We have that in scripture where angels come as messengers to people like Mary, right? But we don't have any accounts of that being the case in Revelation, like we do in other narrative accounts of angels as messengers. So aligned with the style of the rest of the book, this this term angels of these churches are probably personifications or representatives of each church's identity. To the representative of the church of Ephesus, to the representation of the church in Philadelphia. And each of these seven churches, each band of believers was experiencing heavy pressure from the world around them. Revelation was written in a context where uh, oppression and persecution was very high. The message and the reach of the early church was on the move, and so was the resistance to the young church. That is critical for us to catch as we discern its intended meaning for its direct audience. And then from there, once we understand what did this letter, what did the book of Revelation mean for its intended audience, then once we get that, we can infer what does that mean for me in our context. So more on that as we explore the context. That's next, context of the book of Revelation. John has been exiled because of his faith. Again, yes, chapter one, verse nine says, I, John... Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's his take, the author's take on the context. Why am I writing this? As partner in the tribulation, writing in the first century. Rome was a massive, even unprecedented ruling force. I want you to take a look at the scope on both geographical and chronological of the reign of Rome. This this maps out, that big orange on the map there maps out both the time period that the Roman Empire ruled and the geographical space that Rome ruled. It's unprecedented in history. It stands out like crazy how much Rome was in charge. Rome was calling the shots. Rome was calling the shots on what was allowed to spread and would not be tolerated. Rome tolerated Judaism. But here in the late first century was highly suspicious of the fast-growing, fast-moving Christianity, which would cost John's brother James his life. Not James, the brother of Jesus, although he too would be martyred. People of the church, martyred for their faith, exiled for their faith. Again, this is the environment that Revelation was written in and received in. Don't miss that. In fact, that's one of what I'm going to call the two keys to understanding Revelation. Or to state it negatively, without understanding these two things, a person would completely miss or misapply Revelation. So the first key to understanding Revelation, written in an environment of heavy persecution. Life, writings, emotions, readings, it's all different when you're under threat. 
when you're at gunpoint. I know the pressure of life. I know what that feels like. I know what stress in life feels like. But I don't know what this level of persecution feels like. And I'm not going to take whatever cultural, societal, relational pushbacks that I receive, I'm not going to allow that to compare to the serious persecution these people were facing. I'm not saying it doesn't matter in my life or in the lives of the people around me. I'm saying this level of threat that John and the people of the seven churches were facing is unlike anything I can relate to. I can sense, as I read the book of Revelation, the struggles that defied simple, everyday realities just overwhelm the people. And when he was met by the Lord in the Spirit, as he says in verse 10, he heard a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And John, selectively chosen by the Lord in his particular context, with the background that he has in experience, and with an audience in the midst of great tribulation that they were facing, he begins this great reveal from there. So once again, first key to understanding Revelation is that it was written in and written to an environment of heavy persecution. The second key to understanding Revelation is that it draws heavily upon the Old Testament. Now we're talking about style. The style of the book of Revelation is that it draws heavily from the Old Testament. It's kind of like people assuming that the Bible is written as a textbook. And so they come to the Bible with textbook-like questions. And they wait for answers that the Bible was never intending to give. If you don't know much about American or world history from the 1950s to the 1980s, there's a lot about the movie Forrest Gump that you're just going to miss. Because that movie is intended to draw heavily upon American and world history in that point in time. Revelation draws heavily upon the Old Testament. I want to recommend a book for those of you that really want to go deeper in this beyond just this study. It's, it's a book by a guy named Tremper Longman called Revelation Through Old Testament Eyes. If you want to know how would the early church have understood this letter, this is a tremendous resource. Upon an Old Testament foundation, John poetically and figuratively reveals images and visions that he's been given. It says it very clearly in, in a quote like this. Longman says this. The difficulty, though, is not because of the complexity of the book of Revelation, but rather because we modern readers are unfamiliar with imagery that would have been known to its first readers. These images, for the most part, were not created out of thin air but have a background not only in first century A.D. Greco-Roman culture, but also in the Old Testament, which itself has its background in ancient Near Eastern literature. 
images and angels and spiritual winged creatures is not nearly as foreign to the first century audience as it is for you and me. The tabernacle and the temple were filled with heavenly spiritual realities. And numerology, which is the relationship between a number and the meaning of a certain figure or event, to state it way oversimplified, was also familiar to them. Today, you and I see a swastika somewhere, and we both know deeply what it represents and are also probably, hopefully, going to have a strong emotional reaction to just seeing it, right? In Germany, around the time period of World War II, the Third Reich made great, extensive attempts to remove all kinds of imagery of anything that would threaten supreme, complete, unyielding allegiance to the Third Reich, to Nazism, including pressing and compelling churches in Germany to remove all signs of the cross and replace it with the swastika. This is your primary allegiance. Devoted people like famous Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Donanier and Bishop Bell and many others, they resisted the, the values and the actions and above all the, the superseding religious prominent, prominence that Nazism was trying to have over the timeless message and representation and images of Christianity. My point here with such a bold, stark example is that the images of our faith that we have been given directly from the Lord God, they matter. We need to understand what they mean, understand what they represent, and even protect them against false occult interpretations or re-representations. So you don't need to be an Old Testament scholar to understand Revelation, but there are things that we need to see and understand that, that may seem strange to us when we first read them, and they might not have felt that way to the very first readers, specifically readers with an Old Testament foundation. For instance, the Greek word that John uses for Revelation as he first introduces this book in the first chapter is Apocalypse. This book could be called, maybe should be called, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, if we called it that right now, you and I might hear that and it conjures up some epic imagery and maybe even intimidation. But those words had a different connotation for the first audience, the first readers. Because apocalyptic literature for them wasn't just all scary and beasts and something that's hard to wrap their heads around. It included very familiar books like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah, not to mention books beyond just biblical works of apocalyptic nature. So this was a work of narrative communicated in dreamlike, vision-based form from the God that did that quite often, didn't he? He appeared to people in the midst of their troubling times in dreamlike vision form from Jacob to Joseph to Pharaoh and Daniel. This manner of communication brought earthly realities and transcendent heavenly realities together 
as offers of great hope and great comfort for the people enduring trials of all kinds. So I want us to pause for one moment. If you remember the first of the two keys to understanding Revelation, that it was written in an environment of heavy persecution, then this vision-based manner of communication from a God that often employed visions and dreams to bring his people assurance, that at least starts to fit really well within our faith, as opposed to standing out as some weird, foreign, undiscernible work. Of course God would come and meet his people exactly where they are in the greatest hardship that they're facing, dramatically, vividly, richly meeting his people with great hope and great promise. That sounds like what our God does. Revelation is undoubtedly dramatic, intense, and different. But it's different in a way that it stands as the great consummation of God's consistent message and messaging throughout his word. It's a great fit and fulfillment for God's people as a much, at a much needed point in their history. One more quick note on the style of the book of Revelation. It has to do with symbolic numbers, scratching the surface on a topic called numerology. Now, numerology, as many understand it, has to do with the inherent value and representation that a number or numbers of groups of numbers have in and of themselves. And before you think, that's crazy that people would think that, have you ever hesitated to go to the 13th floor when you're on an elevator? Or the 66th floor? Maybe, maybe not, but, but those examples show us there's, there's something that isn't completely foreign to our world, a concept there. And like a lot of things, if we overemphasize the value of numbers or images or warnings, we can get lost in the weeds. But that doesn't mean then that the opposite is true, that numbers hold no representative value at all. Revelation consistently repeats meaningful numbers. There's going to be different interpretations about how to understand all these numbers, and there's some easy to understand, well, that was clear, and some very difficult to understand that will leave us in a little bit of that not black and white area. I gotta keep working on this. See what different people understand that. For instance, how different people understand that. For instance, the most repeated number in Revelation is seven, which in most cases is a number where it's associated with a deeper meaning, is a number that represents completion, perfection. There were how many days of creation? Seven. There are how many churches that John writes to? Seven, representing completeness. Symbolizing those seven churches, we'll see seven lampstands with seven angels and seven stars. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes and is found worthy to open the seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath and seven blessings of God's people. Getting the point a little bit here? Connections like these underscore, they highlight, they represent completion, perfection. The comprehensive rule of the universe and plan of God played out 
in ways that you and I might not always understand, but we can trust. We'll work through some of those numeric meanings and, and also look at some that, like I said, with my scope of knowledge, we'll, we'll have to leave as just works in progress. Things that might be interpreted one way or interpreted another. And like I said at the very beginning, because the differences in interpretations don't critically impact the largest meaning in this book, we're going to have to be okay with some ambiguity and mystery here. It's what makes this work so beautiful. We've taken an overview of the authorship, the audience, the context, and the style. And it's very real as the threat was for these first century believers. And with a wider scope of the efforts of the enemy as played out across all of time, we're going to find ourselves at a certain point where we're asking a very serious question. Will God really prevail? <laughs> Revelation says yes. That leads us to the book's purpose. The book's purpose in a beautiful, artistic, surpassing way Revelation talks about the past, the present, and the future all together. Meeting believers in the midst of marginalization and persecution. Drawing upon the way God has worked in the past and can be trusted. And also pointing to God's final intervention to come. Where he defeats evil once and for all and brings the church to himself. Because I'll probably say this dozens of different ways across the 11 weeks of this study, I'm not going to have it on the screens just yet, but I will at least introduce it here. The two main themes of the book of Revelation, the two main purposes are this, praise and endurance. God will be glorified and is worthy. And his church must endure. In fact, I'm going to say it one more time, and then I, then I want to invite you to say that with me. I think there's some blessing for each of us as we participate in saying these two realities together. God will be glorified and is worthy. His church must endure. Would you say that with me? God will be glorified and is worthy. His church must endure. That's revelation. That's the point of revelation. Okay, just the introduction today. We've covered a lot. I want to bring it in for a landing now with two pretty common, pretty reasonable questions. How can I, no matter where I'm at in my faith and no matter where I'm at in my ability to study the Bible, how can I understand Revelation? People who have never even read Revelation for themselves, many people, still recognize there's this great element of mystery. In so many ways, the beauty and the value of Revelation comes in some of the layers and complexity that you have to sort out like a puzzle, like it's a process of being revealed. But many also see it as an almost hallucinogenic experience with monsters everywhere and written in such a code that only scholars can understand. 
all kinds of God's people can and should engage in the book of Revelation. And that, in that, as we do that, it'll be helpful to study and understand what our God gave us. Trust me, as we do, as we go through this, it'll demystify things a bit. It'll destigmatize this book a bit. It would be a disservice to Revelation to act like it's just elementary. But I promise you it's engageable for you. Not just me. Not just someone that studies it and has a background. It is engageable for God's people. That's why he gave it. It isn't easy. There are angelic and spiritual beings and numerological connections. But God gave this to his people to bless them. It's a gift. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. God's people are blessed by this, this gift. That was the first question. Last question, this one I'm going to have on the screens, and it's related to the big purpose that we'll keep covering throughout this study. What difference does it make? What difference does it make? First, perspective. You and I so often are accustomed to seeing things based on our little scope, our limited vantage point. And the more we engage ourselves in the work of revelation, the more we're going to gain some real perspective. Real perspective about God. Real perspective about suffering. Ours and others that may far surpass ours. About past, present, and future spiritual realities coincide coinciding with material realities. Perspective about victory and conquering and about eternity. What difference does Revelation make? See the big picture. See the God over the big picture. Gain hope, enrich worship, gain perspective. And secondly, perseverance. Perseverance in grit and in purity of life. We're going to get stronger amidst whatever may come. We're going to have a refined, enduring faith that is proven as it outlasts threats and challenges. And we're going to persevere in the purity of our lives. Because as you gain perspective and you gain the strength to live accordingly, we allow the purifying work of the Lord to renew us and reveal more and more of himself and his works to us. It is a great work that we're engaged in. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving, For ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.